The Tennis Gambling Podcast on the Sports Game Podcast Network is brought to you by Hall of Fame Bets, sports betting research platform for parlays, player props, and game ones. Download the Hall of Fame Bets app or visit agewebbets.com. Use code SGPN to get 50% off your first month and start making smarter bets today. We're also brought to you by Cut. Cut is a peer-to-peer social betting platform that's U.S.-based and legal in 40 states. Head to cut.com, that's K-U-T-T.com, and use promo code SGPN to get a 10% deposit bonus and we're brought to you by the sgpn merch store get 15 percent off everything when you use the promo code playoffs and welcome everybody to the tennis gambling podcast here on the sports game podcast scenario it's currently saturday morning january 20th i'm your host as always scott rochelle once again going solo for this pod should be a fun episode because it is time to get into the round of 16 on the men's side so we're going to preview all of the matches we might not go that deep into each match maybe we'll focus on some more than others but i know in the previous rounds we were kind of picking and choosing what matches to cover that is no longer the case we're going to cover all of them moving forward now before we get into any of the previews though do want to recap what happened in the last episode starting off with the lock and dog picks ended up splitting we did win the lock with a chaveri we had the plus seven and a half games as he lost to Djokovic in straight sets but we did think the most realistic outcome for him was probably losing in a competitive straight sets wasn't easy because Echeverry did force a tiebreak, which we needed in the final set, as he eventually lost the breaker and he lost by seven games. So nice winner there. As for the dog, picked up a loss with Makic, had him on the money line at about plus 140. In that match, he had 16 more break points than Kashanov, and he lost in four sets. That's what happens when you go, I believe it was two for 19, I think, on break points. I, I believe that's how he did. It was really, really ugly. Uh, but the point is, Makic outplayed Kashanov for a decent portion of that match. Just could not convert on any of the break points. And you end up seeing Kashanov convert on two out of three. But anytime you go two for 19 on break point chances and you lose in four, while the other player has three break point chances total, I don't want to call it a bad beat, but it's pretty rough. So Malikic, I thought, played well enough to win. He was just not clutch enough to win any of the big points, and he ended up seeing us lose the dog. But once again, Echeverry got it done, so it could have been worse, but we'll look for a sweep here on a Saturday. Now, before we get into any of the uh, actual match previews, do I want to also talk about what has happened over the last couple of days? I am going to start off with the women's side, though, because we've really not covered it that much. It's been a story of upsets uh, with the women's tournament because you have seen a lot of top players lose. You saw Swiatek lose Saturday morning as she was up a set, actually, and then ended up losing in three as you ended up seeing a pretty relatively unknown player a pull off the upset yesterday as she ended up losing to... Sorry, drawing a blank on the name. She lost to Noskova. So Noskova got it done as Swiatek, I believe, was up a set and had a break point. Could not convert, then immediately got broken. That was in the second set. Then you ended up seeing Nuskova hold it out to win the set, and then she won in the third. So Swiatek's gone, Rabakina's gone, and you saw Ostapenko also lose on Saturday morning as she lost the first set handily, then was up a lot in the second set, blew that too, and ended up losing in straight sets. So the point is the women's side has completely opened up. You have two... Serious favorites, you have Goff and you have Sabalenka, and then you have everybody else. So the question is, is anybody actually going to be able to pull off a Cinderella run? Svitolina's been really good. Maybe Azarenka can turn back the clock a little bit. We'll see what happens. But I did want to at least mention the number of upsets that we've had, because I'm sure a lot of you can think immediately of Swiatek and Rabakina, but 
I don't think people have realized just how many top seeds have lost already in the women's side. So to go through those, these are the top 20 seeds of the event. Swiatek, lost. You have Sabalenka, Rabakana, lost. Goth, Pagula, lost. Jabour, lost. Vendrozova, lost. Sakari, lost. Krajikova, you have Haddad Maya, lost. Ostapenko, lost. Zhang, uh, Sam, uh, Samsonova, lost. Kasakina, lost. Kudermatova, lost. Garcia, lost. Alexandrova, lost. Uh, you have Azarenka, Svitolina, and Lynette, lost. Which means, if you are keeping score at home, that means out of the top 20 seeds on the women's side, you have six that are still in the event. 14 of the top 20 seeds have lost already. And they can argue that that's good and bad. It's kind of like the March Madness argument or any real bracket. Anytime you see upsets, it's cool until you get later on to the event and then you see a bunch of relative unknowns and you get kind of bothered that you're not seeing the stars go against it, which is kind of why a lot of tennis fans tend to root for the favorite to win, but competitively, unless you have money on it, of course, to blow them out. But most people probably are rooting for a competitive two or three set match in which the favorite wins, because as much as you want to see, for example, uh, let's just go with the person who beat Swiatek, for example, uh, in the match on Saturday. Would you rather see Sabalenka versus Swiatek in a final, or would you rather see Sabalenka against Noskova? The answer is obviously Swiatek against uh, Sabalenka. Like The point is, I do think, once again, you can argue it's good or bad for women's tennis that this many top seeds have lost, because on one hand, it kind of sums up the entire landscape of women's tennis at the moment, which is complete unpredictability and complete chaos. On the other hand, though, you might be rooting for you know, a solid amount of top-tier matchups between top 10 players, and that just hasn't happened because everybody's lost already. So we're going to see what happens. Been a very good tournament for underdogs, and especially live underdogs, even with favorites in the in uh, the pre-match markets because you had Andriba, for example, who was down a ton. She came back and won. Even Swiatek, who was able to come back against Collins, she was down a lot in that third set, came back and won it. You've seen a lot of comebacks, and I do think, once again, it is a testament to how chaotic women's tennis is and how underwhelming the serving is on the tour because you see breaks all the time, and I feel like being down a break doesn't really mean anything in women's tennis. But anyway, point has been a very fun event, very chaotic I am wondering if the interest in the event is going to die down over the next couple of rounds, assuming that maybe Goff or Sabalenka or both get upset, and you have a bunch of unknowns who are going at it for a title. It could be cool. We saw that in the U.S. Open a couple of years ago with Raducanu beating uh, Fernandez. But the point is, it's pretty rare uh, that you have two Cinderella's meeting up in the final at the same time. Might happen in this case, but I am wondering if the ratings for the women's final, for example, or just even the quarters of the semis will take a nosedive with so many star players already being out. So that's just something I wanted to mention, but I wanted to at least point out because you ended up seeing Swiatek lose last night, or I should say early Saturday morning, which I'm sure most people did not expect, especially after she was able to win the first set. Now, moving on to some of the recap uh, recaps for the matches on the men's side for the third round. We're going to start off going in order by day. So we're going to start off on Thursday night and work our way from there. So looking at Thursday night, you ended up seeing, for example, Makic was uh, competitive against Kashanov, but 
ended up not converting enough break points. Two for 19. It's tough to win matches that way. Uh, moving on, you have Sinner, who was able to kill Baez. We skipped that match because we thought Sinner would kill him, and he did. Fritz beat Morozin in four that I had on the dot. Uh, Fritz has looked better as the event has gone on. Morozin's good. Still a little bit young, still a bit inexperienced, but he definitely has the game to maybe surprise some people moving forward. Uh, Paz ended up beating Van Asch handily, so that's a good win by Paz there, as it was comfortable, and he looked pretty sharp. Then you had our boy, Manorino, who got the job done against Shelton, which we did give out on the show. Uh, mid-match, or I should say mid-match preview, I did say I liked Manorino plus the four and a half, and I did say that I liked Manorino Moneyline, at about plus 215, plus 225, and he got the job done in five. Wanted to mention him specifically because Manorino, A, has a crazy stat that I wanted to mention that I alluded to in the last episode, but I did not have the stat in front of me, and that's his fifth set record, which I'll get into in a second. But he also had some phenomenal quotes post-match, and I just wanted to read those off as well. So starting off with the fifth set record by Manorino, this is going to sound like a fake stat, but I can guarantee you it's real. What if I told you that the last 11 times Manorino's been in a fifth set, he's won every time. He's won 11 straight fifth sets. 11, which is almost impossible. And you figure, you know, that might be the case for like a Djokovic or a Federer or any of those like top tier all-time great player guys. But there's no way that I would have even imagined that Manorino had won 10 straight fifth sets entering that Shelton match. I thought it was going to be a simple record of like 10 and 2, something like that. I knew the record was insane. I didn't realize it was 10 straight. I didn't realize it was an active winning streak. But the point is Manorino, with his style of play, has just, I don't want to say unlimited stamina, but it's very easy for him to kind of conserve energy and to outlast opponents because a lot of his game is redirecting the opponent's pace, which is kind of why he strings his racket a certain way, and it's why he hits the ball extremely flat. He takes a lot of the pace from his opponents and uses it against them, which is what he did against Shelton. Shelton was bombing serves 135-plus, and, you know, it just seemed like it was absolutely just uh, just a bunch of bomb serves off the racket, but Manorino just kept bunts returning it. He just kept check swinging the forehand, and it went over almost every time. And Manorino was able to outlast Shelton in the rallies, which I expected, because Shelton's immature. The forehand has some topspin to it, but Shelton really hits too many unforced errors from that wing, and that was an issue as the rallies got longer. But Manorino arguably should have won in four because he had a decent spot to win the third set, then he blew that one, but he responded well by winning the fourth and the fifth. Point is, Manorino was able to outlast Shelton in rallies. Shelton is also a bit immature just in terms of keeping his emotions under control, which is why Shelton seemed to get extremely discouraged midway through that fifth set when he went down a break. As a result, he compounded the issue by going down the second break. It made it interesting, though, because he got a break back, but then Manorino held as he ended up winning in that final service game at 5-4 to win the match. But Manorino... Wanted to mention him because the French crowd has been phenomenal in Australia. They were all behind Manorino, and Shelton is still a talented young American player, but I do think he needs a little bit more maturity, and I think he needs a little bit more patience in his game because I know he did a pretty decent job with some of the rallies, but other times it seemed like he was just punting shots because he really wanted to end the point quickly. And the rally intolerance was why I did like Manorino's chances in this match and the reason why Manorino did beat him in Miami uh, in their previous meeting. But the point is Manorino got the job done, and I did enjoy one of his post-match uh, post uh, quotes on court. I don't remember if it was Courier 
who asked him the question, but somebody asked him the question of how he stays so relaxed in these high-pressure moments late in sets and like what he's done over the years to improve his overall, I'd say, calmness. And his response, you figure, you know, maybe practice or maybe just like some yoga or something, you know, standard you hear from athletes. And his response was tequila. Now, that's my kind of guy. I'm just saying, whether you like Manorino or not, I think you know that he's become one of my favorite players over the last year and change as he's had a peak at the age of basically 34, 35. Even if you were a D-Gen and you like to gamble, if I told you that a top tennis player's main source of calmness was drinking a shot of tequila, he'd probably immediately be your favorite player. And that's what Manorino is now. I did not. I was not aware he had that side to him, so I thought that was pretty funny, and I wanted to mention that quote because it made me laugh. I also wanted to point out that Manorino is also pretty unique because Manorino refuses to find out who he's playing against in the following round until basically an hour or so before the match. So he had no idea he was playing Shelton, or at least allegedly had no idea. Manorino, historically speaking, though, has been known to get upset at fans or reporters for telling him the upcoming matches in years past. And I bring it up because the next match is Novak Djokovic, and I'm curious if Manorino has any idea because I'm sure it's difficult to hide, but Manorino told the reporter, I think it was Courier, before the post-match interview, don't tell me who I'm playing next, and I always find that pretty amusing, because you figure with the film, with the coaches, you know, the film study and all that kind of stuff, you'd want to know who you're playing. Manorino doesn't care. He goes out there in basketball shorts, in unsponsored shirt, and he just wins matches, and I feel like there's some type of I'm trying to think of a comp. I don't want to say like a Nate Diaz comp to it, but there's kind of a, I don't really give a damn. I'm just here to win and here to, you know, compete for the love of the sport. Maybe it is Nate Diaz-ish, if you want to actually kind of like draw a comparison there, where he just does it for the love of the game, and it feels like he's not interested in the actual, you know, marketing of it and anything like that. What is it, the money channel? No, but I do think that Manorino is once again becoming more and more likable as his career has gone on. And I don't know what it is with the French in this tournament, but they've been really good. You saw Kaza end up burying Greek Spore. They've done well. Even on the women's side, the French players have done well. So I do think looking at Manorino once again, wanted to kind of go on a diatribe there because I'm just extremely impressed by his game and how he's improved over the years. He's been around for over 10, like over 10 years. I think he's been around for basically 15, 16 years on tour, and he's still rolling. In fact, he's in his best form. So props to him. And Shelton is still a good young player. A lot of people don't like him because I think that he's cocky and he's a potential douchebag, which uh, personality-wise, I can get why people don't like him. I don't go that far. I'm not going to hate on the guy because he's cocky with his ability. He's young. He's like 20 years old. Like I'll let him figure it out as he goes, but I do think, once again, he needs to improve the patience and the overall, I'd say, emotional intelligence in his game if he wants to progress and eventually get over the hump. And maybe, maybe and the American Grand Slam curse, which I don't think he's going to in the near future, but maybe when Djokovic retires and we'll see what happens. But to move on from there, Djokovic beat Echeverry in three. Pretty standard. Djokovic looked comfortable. Then there were some, I'd say, stamina issues or energy level issues in the third set, but really never in doubt as Djokovic got the job done as he won in a breaker in the third. Dimenauer buried Kaboli. You saw Rublev kill Korda. We had that. Rublev's owned him in the head-to-head, and Korda is, in my opinion, an absolute clown. To go back to Shelton, for a second, because I feel like I want to briefly mention something about American male tennis players. Do any of them have any clutch gene at all? 
or do they have any mental toughness? Now, Shelton, I think, does to some degree, because at least he made a quarter in the Australian Open. He made the semis in the U.S. Open. So at least I know that he can, at his young age, kind of raise his level to a certain gear where he can make a relatively deep run in a Grand Slam. Now, Tiafo made the semis in the U.S. Open a couple of years ago. Then he got buried by Makic in this event. Once again, I'm skipping some events in between. But Tiafo, as all of you know, I think is an absolute clown. I think that he's got no mental toughness at all, and I think that he's a quitter on tour. I think Corda's a quitter, too, and I think that he's also a low-tennis IQ player who hits a bunch of unforced errors and really just seems to get in his own way all the time. Shelton gets in his own way, too. Yes, he's young, but I'm going to bring him into the equation, too. We saw Nakashima last year fall off a cliff. American tennis is in a weird spot because they have a lot of guys with upside, but it seems like the mental aspect of the game is just not there for most of these players. And I know Fritz is kind of the same way. He's gotten better as the tournament's gone on. But as we know, Fritz has had an issue of winning big matches in the past. I still can't believe he lost that Wimbledon match to an injured Nadal. And he and then Nadal ended up retiring, and he withdrew from the event before the semifinal against Kyrgios. I still can't believe Fritz couldn't win that match. It's a perfect example of it. But the point is, a lot of the American players, if not all of them, just don't seem to have that mental toughness that you need. And I don't know if that's a tennis academy thing. I don't know what the story is, but it's got to be an academy thing, or the way the W, or the way that the um, USTA is training players, because there's no way that all of these players have the same exact flaw, and they've made no improvement over the course of their careers. Tommy Paul's the same way, and Tommy Paul had a really bad—I don't want to say collapse—but he had a blown opportunity. He ended up beating Draper, who was kind of his nemesis. Got the win there. Shout out to him for getting us the lock on that podcast episode. Then he was against Hikmanovic. Was up two sets to one. Had a couple of match points in the fourth set breaker. Didn't convert. And he got bageled. He got bageled in the final set. And I feel like it's a perfect summary of Tommy Paul's career. He's a good, not great player who seems to shrink in big moments. And that's, once again, something that you can draw... I'd say comparisons with him to all of the other top American players. And I at least wanted to mention it, not just because I'm American and because I want to see uh, the country actually win a Grand Slam men's event since Andy Roddick. It's been 20 years. U.S. Open 2003. It's been 20 years. And I know Roddick was close against Federer in the Wimbledon final. I still get flashbacks to that missed volley in the second set tiebreak. But the point is, I do think it's a bit alarming that it's been 20 years and nobody has really been that close besides Roddick. I know Query made a run on occasion. Tiafo made a semi. I don't even know if an American male has played for a Grand Slam final since Roddick. Like, it's been a long, long time. And I wanted to mention it because you saw Paul collapse, Shelton collapsed, and I wanted to mention it because it's been an issue with American tennis on the men's side for a long time. And it seems like it's the same issue with all these guys. So I wanted to mention it. I don't have any data behind that, If, but it does seem when I watch them play, that same flaw is present with all of them. If you're associated with the USTA, or if you do know, or maybe a reason behind that, or if you agree with me, let me know on Twitter. Reach out to me at Rice Show Radio, or reach out to me in the Discord if you agree, because I feel like it's not talked about enough. Like, I do think that that's something that is really present in tennis as being a flaw for a lot of players, and that's the mental aspect of the game. And all of the American players have the same exact flaw. And I feel like that's got to be something involved in the coaching or how they're actually handling the growth of these players through the ranks, through juniors, etc. But anyway, moving back into the recaps, you had Umber, 
who ended up losing to her catch in four. Thought he was alive, ended up winning the first set, then he kind of fell apart from there. Her catch's serve was too good. Uh, Kazu, though, has been on a mission as he ended up burying Greek Spore after he beat Rune, so he was ready to roll. And Shang was either injured or he no-showed the match or both because Alcaraz killed him. I expected that to happen. Shang is a talented young player, but Alcaraz Alcaraz, and Shang had nothing for him. And Shang probably should have retired. He was down 6-1, 6-1, and a break in the third. At that point, go home. Like, you're going to lose anyway. Might as well head out if you're injured. Uh, Then you had Nori beating Rude, and that's going to tie back into the mental aspect of this game. Because besides the, uh, I'd say, the growth of players through the youth ranks, like for American tennis players, for example, I want to know how many coaches players have that actually make adjustments because the Nori and Rude match was a perfect example of how much of an impact coaching can have on a match because Rude, historically speaking, had owned Nori in their careers. He had never lost a match. I believe he lost one set in their like three career meetings, I think. And you figure Rude's more talented. We know that he's made a couple Grand Slam finals. Nori made one Wimbledon semi, and that's basically it. Like, overall, Nori's a good, not great player. You can kind of group him with Tommy Paul. Probably a better version of Tommy Paul, but you get my point. So you figure Nori, who has struggled against Rude in his career, is going to lose again. Because Rude was in good form, looked good in the United Cup, looked good in the first couple rounds. But Nori came out with a game plan. And he decided, with with a Rude standing that far back on the court, I will move forward. I'm going to hit most of my shots on the rise. I'm going to hit him early, and I'm going to step in on the baseline and charge that when I can, which is a smart game plan. They're ready to implement it, and it worked out very well early on. He eventually won in four sets, should have won in straight sets, but he choked away that second set breaker. Didn't matter because he responded well, and he ended up winning in four. But the point is, Nori was entering the match with a game plan, and he said, I'm going to do this until somebody, cha- until Rude makes me change strategies. And Rude proceeded to do nothing. For the entire match, he just stood there. And you barely saw on the broadcast Rude even talking to his coaches. He was venting, where he just seemed extremely frustrated, and it seemed like he was unsure of what to do to combat the strategy from Nori. And that kind of goes back to what I said before about the mental aspect of the game. Rude has no problem-solving ability at all in his game, and I'm kind of annoyed it took me this long to realize it. But the more that I was watching the match the more I saw that his coaches don't actually do anything. I don't know what they do. Because at no point during the match did I say to myself, Rude even has a coaching staff in the building. The only reason why I thought that he did was because the announcers told me. But watching the match, Rude had no adjustments, made no overall effort to change the complexion of the match, and he just let Nori take it to him the entire match. And I was just sitting there. It was kind of like Medvedev, for example, in the U.S. Open, or against Alcaraz in years past, where I know Medvedev made a deeper on the U.S. Open, so maybe that's not a good example, but Wimbledon against Alcaraz, where he got buried in straight sets. We've seen time and time again Medvedev being very content and stubborn of standing so far back on the baseline that he would get served and volleyed to death. And we saw that happen, and he would live with the consequences. If if he loses, he loses, but he was going to see what happens. Now, it worked on occasion because he beat Alcaraz in the U.S. Open, but Djokovic did the serve and volley tactic, and he buried him in straight sets. So the point is there are some strategies to get around uh, beating guys who stand very far back on the returns. But Rude made no adjustments. He played the same exact way for all four sets, and he kind of got buried. I know it went four, but he only broke Nori one time. One time in three-plus hours. Now, Nori, I know, is a good player, but damn, man, he's not a good server. Well, you got to do better than that. I think Rude went one for ten 
on breakpoint chances, but he did nothing the entire match to even make Nori second guess the pre-match game plan. And it was a lack of tennis IQ, a lack of problem solving, and really just poor coaching. And I have to call Root out for it because I have to at least dock some, I'd say, points from him, at least in my mental database, on my, I'd say, opinion of him moving forward because I don't know what his coaches do. Like, at least Rune, when he was struggling, at least he hired a new coach. At least he tried to do something to switch it up. Now, it didn't work in the Australian Open because he lost to Kazu. But still, the point is at least he tried to get a new voice in the building. He tried to get some type of alternate perspective to maybe help his game. Rude's got to fire his coaches. Like, I'm just going to tell you how it is. Like, Rude has no problem-solving ability by himself whatsoever. And I don't think his coaches did anything for him last night. So I don't know what his coaches actually do besides collect paychecks. I'm going to go back to a UFC comparison. You ever see a, a matchup in the UFC or really in any maybe boxing? They go back to the corner in between rounds and you just hear the coaching advice that one coach is giving a losing fighter. And you tell yourself, why is he getting paid to coach on the sideline? Like, he's doing nothing. He's giving horrible advice and he's maybe misleading the fighter where he's telling them that they're winning they're winning the fight and they're clearly losing. Like, they're giving just bad information. And you wonder, why are you even employed? I feel the way about some tennis coaches and Rude's coaches are one of them because I don't know what they do. So I wanted to call out Rude and the coaching staff for an abysmal game plan and really just no adjustments at all. And props to Nori. Because Nori, even though he has struggled over the last year and change, nobody has ever doubted his work ethic. He's one of the best overall gym guys in the entire uh, sport. I mean, he's in the gym all the time practicing. The only limitations he has are physical. So he was cerebral about his approach. He definitely came in with a game plan and he was very consistent and he was really willing to switch some things up. Even he went to some drop shots late in the match, which worked out. But he was willing to really keep Rude guessing, and Rude did nothing to change Nori's game plan. So I wanted to call him out in particular because of an embarrassing performance, in my opinion, by a guy that Rude should beat every time. He's more talented by a wide margin. But Nori out-gameplaned him, and he won. So I wanted to mention that. Then you had the return of... The guy that I've roasted on the show for a long time, who was in great form uh, entering the event, who proceeded to go back to being a clown, Dimitrov, who lost in four sets to Borges. Now, Dimitrov, I've roasted on the show for a long time because he was viewed as being a potential heir to Federer, basically, when he, when he first showed up, and people thought he was going to be a multiple Grand Slam champion. That never panned out. Then he didn't win a single ATP title for about five years. Then he finally won a title in Brisbane. Looked great. Was very aggressive with the one-handed backhand. And then you figure, okay, maybe he can make a deep run. Maybe he'll go to a semi. And then he proceeds to lose to Borges in four sets. And Dimitrov once again got very passive. He sliced a lot of the backhands. He was not good on break points at all. I think he lost the second set despite having, I think it was like seven break points, I think. Yeah, he had seven break points in the second set. Borges had one, and Borges got the break, and Dimitrov didn't. But to go through the match, Dimitrov was one for 12 on break point chances, and Borges was four of seven. That was the story of the match. But Dimitrov being a big favorite in a pretty decent draw and falling apart is just classic Dimitrov. So even when you think he might have been able to break through 
of the Choker label. He is not. So welcome back to Mitrov. Congrats on your title. Welcome back to Underachieving. Now, moving on to the other two matches, Medvedev beat Felix. He owns him. I think he's 7-0 in the head-to-head. Props to Felix at this point for making it to the third round. How the mighty have fallen, but Felix looked decent in the first couple rounds. Medvedev was going to beat him basically every time, and he did because he's just too fundamentally sound for Felix, and Felix has too many unforced errors the longer the rallies go. So Medvedev went wall mode again, and Felix had no answers, and Zverev beat Mickelson. Mickelson, not the most talented guy. Zverev was in a couple marathon matches, and he got the quick win that he needed, which kind of could save some energy moving forward. But once again, pretty entertaining overall third round for the men's. We had a pretty decent round. Uh, some hits and misses, the quarter Rublev match we got right, the Manorino match we crushed, and we got the lock right. So overall, not bad. Could have been better, though. And we'll once again look for a great round four here. We're brought to you by DraftKings. DraftKings Sportsbook is the official sports betting partner of the NFL playoffs, and it is bringing you a great offer to help make the playoffs more electrifying. New customers can bet $5 in any game and get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Maybe you want to look at some big spreads, maybe with the dog. Maybe you want to take Green Bay. Maybe you want to look at the Texans, some talented young quarterbacks there. Point is, though, if you download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the code SGP, new customers can bet just $5 to get $200 instantly in bonus bets only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code SGP. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, Help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions. Terms and responsible gambling resources. We're also brought to you by Cut. Cut is a peer-to-peer social betting platform that's U.S.-based and legal in 40 states. Peer-to-peer social betting is a new and better way to bet. Bet directly against your friends or other users on sports, politics, pop culture, and other events with verifiable outcomes, plus a ton of fun social features that give it a feel of a betting social network. Cut also offers lower, vague, and fully customizable odds. You can create your own bets. Cut handles the payment side of things. You never have to actually worry about that and chase anybody down for money. And they have great social features like group chats, betting leaderboards, head-to-head history, user profiles, fan groups, and more. And they have good rewards, too. Get cash back every single time you place a bet against your friends or other users. Remember that Cut is the peer-to-peer social betting platform that's U.S.-based and legal in 40 states. Head to cut.com. That's cut, K-U-T-T And use promo code SGPN for a 10% deposit bonus. But now we're going to move into the actual fourth round preview. And we're going to start off with the Djokovic and Manorino match. And to start off with the actual odds here, Djokovic is, let's just say, expected to win. He's about minus 6,000. Now, Manorino's plus 2,000 the other way. For the game spread, you have Djokovic minus 9 at minus 115. Manorino plus 9 is minus 105. Over-unders at 28.5. The over is minus 115. The under is minus 105. If you do want Djokovic winning straight sets, you can find that at minus 280. You get the point. Djokovic is a massive favorite. How can you possibly find value in this match? It's a great question. I don't know, but I'm going to try. So to look at the actual head-to-head between these players, they've faced off four times in their careers, and Djokovic is 4-0. However, they've not faced off since 2018. And they faced off two times in Wimbledon, faced off one time in London, and one time in Cincinnati. Every match was 2018 or prior. 
So Djokovic did lose the first set to Manorino in their only meeting in Cincinnati, in a hard court, on hard court in Cincinnati, and Djokovic ended up burying him on grass. So nothing much to really take away. And Manorino's recently had a peak in his career at basically being 34-35. So Manorino, I do think, is live to make this match competitive. Is he going to win? Not even close. Like Djokovic is going to win. He looked really good in that Echeverry match. The interesting wrinkle in this match, though, is that Djokovic has been playing night sessions in Australia for basically a decade straight, and this is going to be the first day match that Djokovic has played in about 11 years, give or take. So you can argue with his fitness towards the end of that Echeverry match where he was kind of having a dip in his overall stamina. Now he's playing in the heat. Assuming that the roof is open, we'll see what happens there because they could always close it. But the point is Djokovic, I do think, maybe struggles with the climate at portions in this match. Manorino's had a bunch of five-set matches in this event. In fact, every round he's been in has gone to five. So you think Djokovic is probably going to win. But Manorino said after the match against Shelton, he feels great. No, no, no fatigue at all. He feels fantastic. So Manorino, I think, can maybe Take a set off Djokovic? Am I picking him to do so? Probably not. But it's pretty similar to my stance on the Echeverry match, which is why is Djokovic laying this big of a spread? He hasn't covered the spread a single time in this event. And yes, he looked good against Echeverry. But even with him doing so, he only won by seven. Nine's a massive spread. Like, I think Manorino plus the nine is really worth consideration. Now, am I picking him to win the match? Once again, no, he doesn't need to. Djokovic can win this match 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, and I could not care less. Like, that's a pretty standard Djokovic win. I'm not going to dismiss Manorino for everything he's done in this tournament and what he's done for the last year and change. I understand, based on the style of play, Djokovic has an advantage because Manorino can only win by outlasting his opponents, and Djokovic is probably the most impossible player to outlast of all time. Maybe Nadal, but you get my point. So I think Djokovic will win. But the fact that Manorino did take a set off Djokovic back in 2018 does tell me I think Manorino can keep this match competitive, and I do think that he's going to keep this within nine games. But simply put, until Djokovic covers a spread of basically more than seven or eight, I'm not laying nine. So give me Manorino plus the nine. I think that spread is insane. So I am going to go with Manorino plus the nine games as my main lean in this match. Moving on. To the next match, you have Sitsipas against Fritz, which should be a lot of fun. You have Sitsipas as a pretty uh, decent favorite here. Sitsipas, or I should say, not a small favorite, actually. About minus 136. Fritz is plus 116. As for the game spread, Sitsipas is minus 1.5 and minus 105. Fritz plus 1.5 is minus 115. Over-under for games is about twenty, about uh, 41.5. The over is minus 125. The under is minus 105. If you want the set wagering, Sissipas minus one and a half sets is plus 145. Fritz minus one and a half sets is available at plus 215. You can get the match to go to uh, four or five, so over three and a half sets is minus 215. Match to go to five sets is plus 210. So unlike the Djokovic and Manorino match, this has been a competitive head-to-head in their careers. In fact, it is dead even. It is tied at 6-6. They faced off in the Australian Open back in 2022, and that was a five-set marathon that Tsitsipas ended up winning, trailed two sets to one, and came back to win that one in five. Match took three hours and 23 minutes. So the point is, Tsitsipas, to go through the actual path of both players, you have Fritz, who's gotten better as the tournament has gone on. 
went to five sets against Diaz Acosta, then killed Gaston and beat Morozan in four. As for Tsitsipas, he ended up beating Bergs in four, beat Tsitsipas in four, and then, I mean, beat uh, Thompson in four, and then killed Van Asch in straight sets with a bagel in there in the second set. Now, I think Tsitsipas is the better player, and the fact that Tsitsipas has made a final here last year, actually, defending runner-up, I think that he will end up outlasting Fritz in this match. But the fact that it went to five in the first meeting in Australia does tell me that this match should be a marathon. And I do think that Tsitsipas is, I don't want to say more trustworthy than, than Fritz, but I trust him more in this event out of five sets because he's made several deep runs in the past year, while Fritz really hasn't. So I think for this one, I'm going to go with Tsitsipas. I think it's a pretty low number. And I do think that, or low price, I think it's going to be close, though. So I am going to lean to the over, but I do think this probably goes four or five. I'd probably lean five if you want to take the over four and a half sets there at plus one, uh, plus 210. But I do think Paz wins, and I do think that his ability to... I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. I think Paz's court coverage is slightly better than Fritz's, and I think that Paz has better stamina. So I'm going to lean to Paz to get the job done here at minus 136, but I also do think it's going to be a marathon. So if you can find a same-game parlay, maybe if you could take the uh, the money line with Sissipas and the over, I wouldn't mind that. Maybe an alternative over, you bump the total down to like 38 and a half games, something like that. But I think there's a couple ways to get Sissipas at plus money to win the match, which I do think is the main lean I'll have for this one. Now, moving on to the next match to cover on the men's side. Once again, a reminder, we're covering every match, so we're not going to be skipping any. Uh, next one on the schedule is Sinner against Kashanov. Now, this one, you have Sinner being a very big favorite, as Sinner is currently looking like the most dominant player, or at least one of them, because he's not dropped the set yet. Djokovic has, Alcaraz has, and basically everybody has, except for Sinner. And Sinner ended up burying Baez in the last round. Now, he's minus 950 in this one, while Kashanov is plus 650. As to the game spread, Sinner is minus 6.5 at minus 135. Kashanov plus 6.5 is plus 115. Over-under for games is 34.5. Over is minus 105. Under is minus 115. If you want to get the set wagering, Sinner to win in straight sets is minus 115. Kashanov to win a set is, plus, is a minus 115. Match to go uh, over 3.5 sets is minus 110. Under three and a half sets is minus 120. Now, for the head to head between these players, it has been a very entertaining four matches. Now, Sinner is three and one, but they have all been competitive. Now, to go through the last three, faced off in Miami in 2021, Sinner won in three. Faced off in Adelaide, Sinner won in three. Faced off in the US Open, Kashanov won in five, came back from two sets to one down. And they faced off on the Aces Tour in 2020. To be honest, I'm not sure what that is. Some random tournament, I guess. Event, you know, exhibition, whatever. And Sinner won in straight sets. But the point is, Kashanov has been close. In fact, he's actually won at least one set in each of the last three meetings. So I do think Sinner is the better player. And Kashanov, once again, did give up a bunch of breakpoint chances to Makic in that last round. But the line feels a bit disrespectful based on the head-to-head. -head. I know Sinner's gotten better over the course of his career. And I know that as of right now... I think he's probably the second favorite, maybe third if you want to include Alcaraz, but the point is Sinner is definitely on a different tier than Kashanov. But do I think Kashanov can win a set in this match? I do. I think that he's good enough to at least capitalize on Sinner maybe wavering at some point for at least one set. Kashanov has been good here in the past, defending semifinalist. He has gone to four sets in each of the first three rounds, while Sinner has not dropped a set yet. But he had some moments against uh, Dezanchov, which was kind of close, 
beat De Jong as a relative unknown or De Jong and ended up beating Baez. So he really hasn't played great competition up to this point. They could argue the same thing about Kashanov, but I do think that Sinner will be facing a step up in competition. And I think Kashanov can remain competitive like we have seen when these players get together. So I think Kashanov wins a set. I will take Sinner to win the match, but I do think Sinner in four is pretty realistic. So I actually don't mind Kashanov uh, plus two and a half sets here at minus 115. Based on the head-to-head and based on the style of play, I see a lot of long rallies, a lot of powerful forehands, but I do think Kashanov's serve is good enough to at least get to a breaker or two, and at that point, all bets might be off. So I am going to lean to Kashanov plus the two and a half sets here at minus 115, but I think Sinner will end up winning the match. Moving on to the next match, you have probably... The biggest toss-up of this round, you have Rublev taking on Dimonauer, as Rublev is currently minus 130 on the money line, and you have uh, Dimonauer at plus 110. As for the game spread, Rublev minus one game is minus 125. Dimonauer plus one is plus 105. Game total here is at 40. The over is minus 105, under is minus 115. As for the set wagering, the match to go over three and a half sets is minus 225. Uh, You have Dimonauer to win in three or four sets, so minus one F sets is plus 190. Rublev to win with minus one F sets is plus 150. Match to go five sets is plus 190. So for the head-to-head between them, you have seen a pretty interesting head-to-head as Dimonauer is currently three and two. Uh, Rublev did win the last meeting, though, in Paris at the end of last year as he came back from a set down and he won in five. But to go through the head-to-head between them, the face-off in Washington back in 2018, match went three, Dimonauer won. Face-off in the next-gen final, where it was first to four in each set, Dimonauer won in four. Face-off in Monte Carlo, Rublev won in three. That was in 2022. Face-off in Rotterdam in 2023, and Dimonauer ended up winning in straight sets. And they face-off in Paris, and Dimonauer did lose in three sets, despite winning the first set. So first things first, over three and a half sets for a parlay piece, sure. I think it's going to be a very competitive match. I think it might go five. It's a toss-up for a reason, and I think it should be a lot of fun. Now, Rublev has gotten better. As the event has gone on, beat Seaboth Wild in five, killed Eubanks like I thought he would, because Eubanks, I don't think, is very good, and he ended up beating Korda, which I'm not surprised with, because he owns Korda in the head-to-head, and Korda is just a mentally weak player. As for Dimonauer, he has been rolling, beat Rayonich in two and a half sets, despite losing the first set, because Rayonich got injured, beat Arnaldi in three sets, and beat Kaboli in three sets. So he beat up on the Italians, but Rublev is definitely a step up in competition. Rublev was uh, forced to match up against Korda. Now, I know Korda, once again, is a head case, but at least he's beaten the top 20, top 30 guy in this event, where Dimonauer really hasn't. So you can argue that even though Dimonauer has been in great form, and even though he's in the top 10, and even though he did make a good, impressive run in the United Cup, he is maybe a bit overrated, in the spot because of the weak competition that he's had in the Australian Open. Then again, he beat Djokovic and he beat Zverev in the United Cups. So I'm not sure if that actually applies or not, or if that argument holds water. But I think for the sake of this matchup, I think I am going to lean to Dimonauer in this one. I think the home crowd is going to help him. I think it's going to be an absolute war. Give me the over. Uh, I think the sets are going to be definitely in play here as you can get the over four and a half sets once again at plus 190. Maybe if you want to take Dimonauer to win in five, you can take a long shot prop there. But I do think at the end of the day, you will see a very fun, a very long match that's very unpredictable. And I do think that Dimonauer's consistency 
and the crowd support will eventually help him get past Rublev. If Rublev wins, would I be shocked? Absolutely not. I think it's going to be a very close match, but I was a fan of Dimonauer entering the event because of how good he was in the United Cup, and it does seem like that is carried over into this tournament. Give me the guy in great form. I'll take... And both of them are in great form, though, because Rublev did win the event in Hong Kong. Dropped a couple of sets. But the point is, I do think that Rublev is capable of winning the match, obviously, but I like the value in a coin flip. Give me plus 110 in what I think is a pretty much a 50-50 match. So moving on to the next match, you have Borges against Medvedev. Medvedev is basically minus, I don't know, 2,000 in this one, uh, give or take. Uh, Medvedev is about 2,000. Borges is about plus 1,100. Game spread, Medvedev minus 7.5. Games is minus 135. Borges plus 7.5 is plus 115. Over-under for games is 30.5. The over and the under are both at minus 110. If you want to go for some set wagering, you can get Medvedev to win in straight sets at minus 185. Borges to win a set is plus 155. And you can also get the match to go... Uh, over three and a half sets at plus 160. Now, Borges was a guy that I've roasted on the show for about a year because I didn't think he was very good. I might have to apologize to him because apparently he listened to the podcast and he was pissed because he ended up beating uh, Dimitrov in the last round before that ended up beating uh, Davidovich Fakina in straight sets and he beat Bor- uh, beat Martera in straight sets in the first round. So he's been in great form. Medvedev did drop a set to Otmain before Otmain retired in the middle of that fourth set. Beat Rusevori in five, and then ended up beating Felix, who is the guy that he completely owns. He beat him in straight sets. So the point is, Medvedev has been playing better recently, but he has been a bit vulnerable. The only problem I have with Borges, though, is does he have any weapons that I think he can actually, you know, kind of push Medvedev around the court? I don't think he does. Borges doesn't exactly have much net talent, so I do question his ability to serve and volley if Medvedev's going to stand so far back on the court, which he obviously will. Borges had a great run. I think he can win a set. I I think the value might be there for him to win a set at like plus 155. Is he going to win the match? No. Like, I think Medvedev is going to win probably in three or four. But I do think Borges is going to keep a set interesting or two. Maybe you get a breaker in there. But Medvedev's been solid. I think that he's too solid for Borges. And I do think that if you are going to give up that many break points to Dimitrov. You're going to give up a lot of break points to Medvedev. And I think Medvedev capitalizes on them. So give me Medvedev to win this match relatively comfortably, maybe dropping a set, but I don't expect anything more than that. I think it's going to be Medvedev in three or four. Moving on to the next match, you have Kazu taking on her catch. Kazu has been the Cinderella story of the event besides Borges kind of neck and neck there for who's been the more surprising guy. Probably Kazu because he's been a, because he was a wild card. Uh, so that's probably where I'd lean for who's been more surprising. But as for Kazu, he is a pretty decent-sized underdog in the spot, as her catch is currently available at about minus 300. Kazu is about plus 250. As for the game spread, you have minus 4.5 games for her catch at minus 105. Kazu plus 4.5 games is minus 115. As for the money one on Kazu, by the way, is plus 250. As for the over-under in games, 39.5. The over is minus 120. Under is even money. And you can find... Uh, the set wagering here, her catch minus two and a half sets is available at about uh, plus 200. Kazuto win a set is minus 260. If you want to get her catch minus one and a half sets, you can't get that at minus 150. Kazuto plus one and a half sets is plus 120. Match to go over three and a half sets is minus 175. Match to go over four and a half sets is plus 240. Now, Kazuto, once again, to go through his path so far, 
he has been really, really impressive. Now, he had a war in the first round against Dajir, which he won in five, beat Rune in four. Wasn't even fluky. He kind of just outplayed Rune for most of that match. And then he also ended up burying Greek Spore in one of the most impressive events of the entire tournament in general, winning 6-3, 6-3, 6-1. As for her catch, he's been good. Did drop two sets to Mensik and did drop a set to Umber. But we know that the serve is going to be the story for her catch. If he's able to hit his spots on the serve, he's almost impossible to break. And the question is, will her, will Akaza be able to get enough breaks of serve to keep this match extremely interesting? Because he is six feet tall, which might put him at a disadvantage, but damn, he's got talent. And I do think he can potentially be a serious threat to crack the top 50, or maybe even higher than that, in the near future. Now, I do think Hercatch, despite being a top 10 player, and despite having probably the best serve on the entire tour right now, post-Isner, you're looking at Kaza being a guy who can showcase a lot of skills and a guy who can out-rally Hercatch, because Hercatch's issues are still unforced errors. I think it's going to be a fun match. I think that Kaz was actually pretty live. Now, unfortunately, I did think that Umber was going to beat a Hercatch, or I thought he was very live to do so. And it looked good early because he won the first set before Hercatch kind of took over. It really comes down to the return game of Kaza against Hercatch's serve. And maybe it's based on just the form that I've seen from Kaza, but I really think he can d pull something off here. I think that he's been in great form. I think that plus 240 is a very generous price for a guy that's playing phenomenal tennis. And he's, be he's uh, been good competition. Like, Dejir's dangerous. We saw him take Djokovic to five in the U.S. Open last year. We saw, for example, Rune have a good run in Brisbane. And the only reason why he didn't win the event was because Dimitrov won God mode. So he's been good competition. Like, I think that you can make an argument that uh, Kaza is pretty live to actually win a set at least, maybe two sets. But I think for the sake of the uh, match here, I don't see much value on her catch. I'm probably going to end up leading to Kaza plus the games here. And I think that he can keep this competitive, maybe winning it outright. But I like his game. Simply put, I think that he's a good player. And I think that he's in line for what can be another sizable upset after he ended up beating Rune in uh, 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 the tournament a couple rounds ago. But I quickly want to pull up uh, his results, because I'm pretty sure Kazo was like a very good, uh, maybe, was he a juniors player who was really good? I don't I don't remember, but I know he was pretty good in challengers as he was able to win a challenger in 2022. Uh, did pretty well in challengers in 2023, but the point is I do think you're looking at a guy who is starting to make his presence known as a potential future top 50 guy, and he is really, really good. So that's kind of going to wrap it up here uh, for my thoughts on that match. Moving on, to the next match, you have a matchup between Kikmanovic and Alcaraz. Now, Alcaraz is a big favorite, as you ended up seeing him kill Shang in the previous round, and basically two sets two sets and change. Alcaraz is about minus 3,300. Kikmanovic is plus 1,500. As for the game spread, minus 8.5 games is the spread for Alcaraz, minus 110, plus 8.5 for Kikmanovic. And the over-under for games is 30.5, over is minus 110, under is minus 110. Alcaraz to win in straight sets is available at minus 180. Hikmanovic won a set is plus 150. Match to go over three and a half sets is plus 150. Match to go to five sets is plus 600. Now, Hikmanovic had a war in the last round against Paul, where he faced a couple of, of match points in the fourth set tiebreak, fought him off, and then won via bagel in the fifth set. Round before that, went to a fifth set breaker against Struff, which he ended up winning 11-9. I, I believe he also 
fought off a couple match points in that one as well. I think, I don't recall. Apparently, he did not. So apologies, I thought he did, but he did not. Pointing Manovich, though, has been involved in a couple marathons, did end up going to four sets against Watanuki in the first round as well. So Alcaraz has been on the court for a lot less time than Kikmanovich, and I am wondering about stamina, if Kikmanovich is going to be able to overcome back-to-back five-setters. It's tricky. Now, they faced off in Miami back in 2022. Alcaraz did win, but it was competitive. In fact, it went to three sets, and you had two tiebreakers. So the point is, I do think you're looking at Kekmanovic maybe being disrespected here. Now, Alcaraz is the better player, obviously. Kekmanovic has a pretty good serve. I think he's got talent. Eight and a half games. The concern is the stamina for Kekmanovic, because I do wonder if he'll be exhausted or not. He seemed in pretty good physical condition after the victory against Paul. Maybe winning a fifth set via bagel helps with that. But still, I think I'm going to lean to the games here. Alcaraz has been very good, but I do think he is going to win this match. By by dropping some games, though, we saw him face off against Gasquet, went to a breaker in the first set before Gasquet completely ran out of gas, who was basically one uh, foot out the door ready for retirement. Lost a set to Sonigo. That was competitive, though. And then they're beating Shang, who was potentially injured entering that match. But with the Sonigo match, you saw a talented guy make life difficult for Alcaraz in a match that Alcaraz is obviously going to win. I see a similar story here. I think that Alcaraz is going to win, but I do think Kikmanovic can make this competitive. Maybe he'll win a set. I see probably a breaker in which he loses it. So I think you're probably going to see a straight set win by Alcaraz. But I do think the game spread at 8.5 is a bit too high. And as a result, I am going to go with the dog here plus the 8.5. Moving on to the final match, I believe the final match, for the round of... 16, you have a matchup between Zverev and Nori. and this one, uh, you have Zverev being a pretty decent favorite here of about minus 350, and you have Nori at plus 280. As for the game spread, you have Zverev minus 4.5 games at minus 125. Nori plus 4.5 games is plus 105. As for the over-under, 38.5, the over is minus 110. Under is minus 110. If you want the set wagering, you can get Zverev to win uh, in straight sets, sorry, pulling it up once I can find it. Zverev's one in straight sets is plus 175. Zverev to win uh, with minus one and a half sets is minus 165. Match to go over three and a half sets is currently available at... Sorry, I'm trying to find it. Um, Yeah, I don't even see it. I don't see that on the market, so apologies, but the book I'm looking at doesn't have it. Uh, but the point is, match to go to five sets is plus 275. Now, in the head-to-head, Zverev has kind of owned Nori as he's 4-1 lifetime. Uh, They faced off in Vienna at the end of last year. Zverev won in straight sets. Faced off in the ATP Cup. Zverev won in straight sets. Faced off in Montreal. Zverev won in straight sets. Faced off in Acapulco. Zverev won in straight sets. The only match that Nori ended up beating Zverev in was in uh, Adelaide back in 2014. So that tells me absolutely nothing. The point is Zverev has owned Nori in the head-to-head all on hard court in the last four years or so. And I do think that Zverev will once again win this match, probably close to straight sets or at least in three or four. But Zverev, unlike Rude, I think can make adjustments. I think he can outclass Nori. And I do think that Nori once again had a great game plan 
against Rude, who apparently is incapable of making adjustments. And even with that, Rude had moments where he probably should have been up a set in a break, maybe, because I think he went 0 for 6 in break points in the first set. But I'm going to go with Zverev to win this comfortably. I think Nori, once again, is a smart player. He is a very fit player, but I question the actual skill set. And Zverev, after a couple of marathon matches, got the much-needed straight set win in the last round. I expect him to be fresh, and I think he'll be able to win this one in a pretty convincing fashion. So give me Zverev to win this match comfortably. Minus one and a half sets is probably worth a look, but minus 165 is a little bit steep, but I do like that play. Maybe if you want to go with the game spread, I don't hate it per se, but I do think you're looking at Zverev probably once again beating up on Nori like he has in each of the meetings for the last four or five years. That's going to wrap it up, though, for the entire round of 16 preview on the men's side. Now it's time for the lock and dog picks. But for intending that, kind of a quick word from our sponsor. We're brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. Underdog Fantasy has a way to play alongside your favorite fantasy players all season long. NFL, NBA, NHL, college basketball, and college football. Simply pick higher or lower on your favorite players' fantasy stats and cash in. So watch along, make your picks, and maybe make a little money over Underdog's mobile app or website. UnderdogFantasy.com. And remember, when you sign up with the promo code SGPN, Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. It's Underdog Fantasy, promo code SGPN. We're also brought to you by Hall of Fame Bets. Win bigger betting smarter this NFL season with Hall of Fame Bets, sports betting analytics platform for parlays, player props, and game lines. Research every NFL, NBA, and soccer bet with historical stats and data. Enter any parlay idea into Hall of Fame Bets' revolutionary parlay optimizer tool to get hit rates broken down by leg, as well as an expected probability for the entire parlay. Sort all players by hit rate for any bet to learn which players are hot and which picks have value. Stop betting in the dark and join over 30,000 users researching with Hall of Fame Bets to craft more intelligent, data-driven parlays. Download the Hall of Fame Bets average at HOFBets.com and use code SGPN to get 50% off your first month. Start researching, start winning with Hall of Fame Bets. We're also brought to you by the SGPN Merch Store. 15% off everything in the store from now until the end of the month. Promo code PLAYOFFS. We're competing against other shows for a bonus. So once again, if you do like the tennis podcast, I'd recommend buying some merch. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast. Just finished previewing the Arana 16 matches, all of them, for the Men's Australian Open. Now it's time for the lock and dog picks. Starting off with the lock, we are going to go with one of the first matches on Saturday. Going to look at the Djokovic and Manorino match. And the last round, we faded Djokovic and we got away with it as we took the underdog plus the games as Djokovic won in straight sets, but did not win by enough margin as we picked up a winner. Same story here. We're going to also back one of our favorite players on tour. Give us the bald Frenchman who likes tequila, plus nine and a half games at minus 144. I understand the argument, once again, that Manorino has played a lot of tennis, five sets in each of the first three rounds. I believe the match against Shelton went four hours and 46 minutes, but according to Manorino, he feels fine. And usually after marathon matches, you'd see the player hunched over in the post-match interview. You'd see him kind of like chugging water. Manorino looked fine. He, was, he looked like a man without a care in the world, and I do think that's going to bode well for him in this matchup because we know nobody's going to give him a chance to win. Manorino doesn't care. He shows up ready to play for the love of the game, and I do think he's going to at least make one set extremely competitive. And when you're getting nine and a half games, that might be all you need because we saw in the last match that Djokovic played. Both sets were pretty lopsided, 6-3, 6-3, and we needed one set to be close. Echeverry got to a breaker, and that's all we needed. And once again, that was plus 7.5 games. Now it's 9.5. And 
you have to get absolutely curb stomped to not cover nine and a half. And Djokovic, with the spread, has not covered in any of the first three rounds. So I do think Djokovic is going to win, probably in straight sets, but the same exact logic as last round. Give us the dog to make it close. Give us a couple of 6-3s, 6-3, Standard lopsided Djokovic win. That's a win for us, too, because Manorino covers the 9.5. But simply put, until Djokovic actually covers this line, I'm not going to assume that he's going to. The fact that Manorino was back in 2018, but the fact that he was able to take a set off of Djokovic in Cincinnati tells me that Manorino can maybe make this match interesting. And once again... There is a, un a unique wrinkle in this match for Djokovic, which is him playing in Australia during the daytime. And with the heat in Australia, there might be a concern. Who knows? We saw Djokovic kind of struggle physically in that end of the third set uh, against uh, Echeverry. But he's been playing night matches in Australia for basically 11 straight years. And now he has a day match. Is that going to be an issue? Maybe not. But it might be. And if you want to throw in a wrinkle with that, I do think that's going to hurt him, potentially, as this match goes on. So once again, for the lock, give me the bold Frenchman that likes tequila. Give me Manorino, plus the 9.5 games at minus 144. For the dog, I am going to go back to the two-pick parlay with sets. I'm going to go with the over 3.5 sets, or in other words, both players to win a set in the Rublev and, and Dimenauer match at, at minus 220. I'm going to parlay that with both players to win a set in the Fritz and Tsitsipas match at minus 235, and that two-pick does pay out at plus 107. Baby dog, but I still like it. I really didn't like many underdogs to win outright in this round. Thought about Kaza, but the fact that he's only six feet tall does give me some concern about his ability to actually break her catch's serve. I think he's got a shot, but I didn't feel great enough of actually locking it in as my dog. So instead, I'm going to take two matches that I feel pretty confident about going four or five. I'm going to parlay them together. Dimenauer and Rublev, pretty much every match they have is an absolute war, and I see that being the case once again, since both players have been in very good form so far in this event. And as for the second match between Fritz and Sissipas, we saw them in Australia about two years ago. That match went five. Both players are pretty similar in the sense that they have good serves and they are... I'd say prone to serious mental errors. And I think that can result in a pretty up and down match between these players, but give me a competitive war in the Dimenau Rublev match and the Fritz Sitipas match. And that pays out at plus one Oh seven. So once again, the lockdown picks for the show, the lock is going to be on Manorino plus the nine and a half games at minus minus one forty four, And the dog will be on the both players to win a set markets. Give me the Dimenau Rublev, both players to win a set at minus two twenty parlayed with the both players who want to set and the uh, Fritz and Tsitsipas match at minus 235, and that two-pick pays out at plus 107. That's going to wrap it up, though, for the round of 16 episode. We'll back once again for the quarterfinals in the next episode. But until then, find me on Twitter at Right Show Radio. Find me on the NBA show. Find me on the NFL show. I get the point. Until next time, though, good luck to all of you and all of your bets. Bye, everyone.